the biggest mistake usually is that it doesn't retrieve the right information. Like retrieval is super important. And if it doesn't retrieve the right information or if it retrieves partial information, obviously it's going to get it wrong. You're listening to Gradient Descent, a show about machine learning in the real world. And I'm your host, Lucas Bewald. Harrison Chase is the CEO and co-founder of Langchain, which is one of the fastest growing open source projects of all time and something almost everyone uses these days when they build applications on top of large language models. We recently did an integration with Langchain in our product, WMB Prompts. And so we spent a lot of time working with Harrison and have walked away super impressed. This is an interview where we go super deep into the technical details, and I hope you enjoy it. So Harrison, I think for most of our audience, you probably don't need an introduction, but we probably should start with a description of what Langchain is before we delve into the details. Yeah, absolutely. So Langchain is a framework for building applications powered by large language models. So we've got Python and JavaScript packages. They provide a lot of the components, the individual modules with some standard interfaces and standard abstractions around what each module and component is. And then we also have a bunch of chains, which are basically ways of stringing together those components to achieve particular basically end-to-end applications. So an example of an end-to-end application would be like question answering over your documents or something, which combines a bunch of different components from a language model to a vector store to embeddings to prompts and strings them together in a particular way. And yeah, so that's basically what Langchain is. Could you go into a little more detail about what it does? Like maybe just using that example that you just gave? Yeah, so Langchain started by basically talking to a bunch of folks, building stuff with language models and noticing that there was a lot of common abstractions in terms of what they were doing. And so there were a lot of common abstractions around what they were doing in terms of constructing prompts, in terms of calling out to language models, in terms of calling out to embeddings, in terms of calling out to vector stores. So for the example that I kind of just gave of document question answering, the motivation for doing this is that you want to have a chat experience over your documents. So chat GPT, but it knows specific contents of your documents or of particular documents that it wasn't trained on. And so what that general process looks like is you'll get the user question that comes in. Based on that user question, you'll then look up relevant documents. And so this is done in a generic retriever interface, but by far the most common way to do this is to do some type of vector lookup. So you'll create an embedding with an embedding model. You'll then look up based on that embedding, other embeddings that are similar in the vector space. And those are of the documents that you ingest in the ingest step. So these are all your documents that you initially pre-process. You create, you chunk them up into chunks. You create embedding for each chunk. You store them in a vector store. Now you've got this question that comes in. You look up similar vectors. You get those documents back. And then basically you construct your prompt in a particular way where you say, hey, this is the user question. I want to answer it according to the information in these documents. And you pass it the four documents that it retrieves. And then you pass that to the language model and then you get back a response. So there's this flow of going from question to embedding to documents that you get back to constructed prompts to calling the language model to getting a response. And sometimes that response can also have some structure to it, which you might parse on the other end. So it might have like an answer and then some sources. All of these components are individual modules in LangChain that you can string together and swap out really easily. So you can swap out the embedding model that you use. You can swap out the language model that you use. You can swap out the vector store that you use. And yeah, so the idea is to make it really easy to have these building blocks, swap them out for each other, assemble them, and then have some pre-run templates to get started with. But so I guess it's important to say, though, that you don't actually make any of the underlying stuff. Like you're not making a vector store and you're not making 
but now um, you're kind of like this abstraction layer on top of it. Yeah. So I would say for like half the stuff that we have, we don't make. So we don't make the LLMs, we don't make the embedding models, we don't make the vector stores. For the other half of the stuff, and these are kind of like newer, maybe smaller things that are starting to arise out of working with language models, we actually do have in-house. So we have a bunch of different ways of splitting text, because now this is really important because of the context limits. There just wasn't a good library for this, so we have like 10 different methods for doing this. We have a bunch of document loaders to, to load documents from other sources. We have a bunch of stuff related to prompts, because again, prompts weren't really around until recently. So we have a lot of different prompt templates. And we have a lot of output parsers as well, which parse the output of language models into a structured format. So yeah, it kind of depends on the component, but some of them we just wrap and provide a standard interface. And then others, we actually do have implementations of ourselves. I see. It's interesting though, like you've built a library that's become one of the most popular libraries of all time very quickly. Like, do you have a sense of what sort of drives the popularity of LangChain? I mean, I think there's definitely a big tailwind of everyone's just excited to be building with language models and there's real value that they can unlock. And I do think there is a gap, especially when LangChain started between the underlying APIs for the language models and then the end user experiences. And I think LangChain aimed to make going from the API to the end user experience as easy as possible. Yeah, honestly, I think I'd attribute it to one just like really good now models that empower a lot of these things. And there's just a lot of interest and useful applications that you can create with them. And then two, I think a lot of the goal has always been to make like creating these applications as easy as possible. And that's kind of what we've been always optimizing for. And so hopefully people are drawn to LangChain because it does provide a way of quickly getting started and, and building these more complex applications. Like if you're just going to make a simple call to a language model, you honestly don't need LangChain for a lot of things. It's when you start getting into some of the more complex applications that we provide some templating and scaffolding for that I think it really shines. So you think the main thing is kind of the chaining of multiple things together? Is that fair? Yeah, I think chaining is definitely one of the main things. I think there's a lot of the utils we also have are around, I would just say like more complex things. So like even if you're making a single call to the language model at the end of the day, like in the document question answering thing, you're doing a lot of work to carefully construct that prompt, basically. And so I think like for a lot of the more complex prompt construction things, we have utils that are handy there. And there is another aspect, which I think is, there is another aspect, which I think will be more useful over time, which is basically the ability to have a standard interface for these models and swap them out. The reason I say it will be more useful over time is because, to be honest, at the moment, everyone's using OpenAI. But I think like as other models become more and more viable, and I think we're starting to see that with some of the anthropic models, having the standard interface to easily swap them in and out, I think that will actually be a pretty big value add as well. What's the complexity that arises in the prompt construction? Like, Could you give me a little bit of a flavor of that? Yeah. So there's a few different things that generally go into like a prompt construction bit. There's a base kind of like instruction set. And so this could be like the system message that you have with like chat GPT. That's a good way of thinking about it. But even with like the normal LLMs, you still have some kind of like base instruction set. And that's generally fixed by the application developer. Then you probably have like a user input. And so this is the real-time input of what they type into the chat box or something like that. And then you have a bunch of data that you gather based on the user input or metadata associated with the user input to also put in the prompt. And so an example of this is like the relevant documents that you might want to do question answering over. And so that's a really simple example of getting other data that's based on the user input and putting it in the prompt. 
I think other examples as you start to get more and more complex are when you start to do things like personalization for specific users, you could basically look up attributes about that user and put them into the prompt as well. And so it's not based on the user input, but it's about the user and it's not in the system message. And so then, yeah, I think that's a good example of adding on top of kind of like the retrieve documents. And then another source of information that you often want to put in prompts is basically previous interactions. And these can be previous interactions between the user and the AI. And so this is like a conversation. You want to be able to ask follow-up questions. You want to be able to ask questions about things that were answered previously. But this can also be previous interactions between the AI and another system, like a tool. So when it uses a search engine, right, it should know like, hey, previously, look, I typed this into the search engine. I got back a response and that's a previous step. And so, yeah, I think you pretty quickly start to, again, for simple applications where you maybe just like use only the user input, it's pretty easy to call out to the language model by itself. But when you start doing this more kind of complex kind of like prompt construction, I think that's where some of like the prompt templates and prompt helpers. Oh, there's another thing as well. I see there's so many that I keep on forgetting all of them, but like few shot examples, basically examples where you tell the language model, this is an input. This is what correct output is. This is another input. This is another correct output. And the language model uses that to basically guide what it does the next time around. And so we have a lot of utils for working with all those different pieces and then constructing them in a standard way. All right. Thank you. So that definitely grounds this discussion. But before we get too far into it, I really wanted to hear the story of Langchain. I mean, you've had this kind of massive success. Like, what were you thinking when you built it? Like, what were you trying to do and what changed as the product started to take off? Yeah. So Langchain started, I was looking this up the other day, the first release or the first tweet, because everything's a tweet these days. The first tweet was, I think, October 24th or 25th of 2002. So seven months ago now, eight months, something like that. And the context for that was I knew I was leaving my current job. I was exploring in the space. I wasn't sure at all what I wanted to do next. At this point, there was language models were starting to become a thing. I went to a bunch of meetups, chatted with a bunch of folks who were building things and saw what I thought some common abstractions were. And so I put them in a Python package, not intending to start a company around it or anything like that, basically using it as a way to further explore the space and basically get to know what like interesting things could be. And it turned out that this package itself was pretty interesting to people. And so got some positive feedback on that. I was also having like a lot of fun (laughs) just working with it. And so spent some more time on it. And then I would say after like a month or so, I realized that there was probably like a decent kind of like opportunity here to build something really cool and really awesome. And so by the time I ended up leaving my job, which was in like mid-January at that point, my plan was always to like spend a few months figuring out what I wanted to do next, but I I knew it was worth working on this full time. So I teamed up with Ankush, my co-founder who I'd worked with previously. And I think we incorporated in like late January, early February, and that's kind of when it became a real company, so to speak. And were you working on like building applications at the time? Or how did you even decide to build these specific abstractions besides the meetups that you're going to? Yeah, so my background's in kind of like ML and MLOps. So I worked at Kencho, a fintech company, doing some time series and NLP stuff for a few years right out of college. And then for the past three and a half years, I was working at Robust Intelligence, which was an MLOps company. And so I did some application stuff at Kensho, and then I did more MLOps and tooling stuff at Robust. Yeah, I, I like the tooling side of things. I like the MLOps side of things. I think I just enjoy building tools to help other people do machine learning in a more easy way or something like that. So I knew I always liked that. 
And then there was a hackathon at Robust where I built an application as well that informed some of, or that I built that before LangChain and used it. That was one of the things that like piqued my curiosity in the space. And I actually did a question answering bot over our Notion documentation. <laughs> so very related to a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about. Were there any tools that inspired LangChain? I mean, this is a question, like I've been trying to think of like parallels for LangChain a lot recently. So we try to figure out like what exactly the company is and stuff like that. And honestly, I don't know if there's any like amazing parallels. Like I think there's certainly some kind of like parallels to like some type of like PyTorch or TensorFlow or Keras type thing where you've got this abstraction layer on top of the underlying tensors. But I don't think those are perfect because I think a lot of LangChain is about like connectivity and connecting different things and less so than like complex kind of like graph computations or anything like that. I guess I'm not necessarily demanding like a parallel in terms of like where it sits in the stack or something, but I'm curious, like maybe just like what other tools did you like using that might've kind of influenced the design of the docs or the API or the structure? Is there anything that comes to mind like that? That's a good question. I mean, honestly, I think a lot of the design was really strongly influenced by my time at Kensho. <laughs> like I think Kensho had amazing engineers and I think a lot of the things in terms of yeah, design principles and what to document and how to think about things. And I don't think LinkChain lives up to the same standards that Kensho had internally, to be honest, but I think a lot of it comes mostly from that. Yeah, I mean, another thing, like one of the reasons I started at open source was to work with people in the open again. And a lot of those initial people were actually from Kensho. So if you look at the initial contributor log, there's a lot of ex-Kenshins there. And yeah, I mean, I was definitely really influenced by a lot of the engineering culture there and a lot of their, and a lot of the learnings I took from them. So that's definitely kind of like the main source. Can you give me an example of one of the learnings or best practices that you brought with you? Yeah, I mean, I still remember this was from a tech talk, I think, that someone gave at Kensho. But he was a very good friend of some of the engineers there. And it was basically around just like inputs and outputs should kind of be like as simple as possible. And this is like a really small thing. But if you have a list of like a thousand or if you have 10 different arguments, they can sometimes like conflict each other. There can be kind of like conflicting information and then you have to do validations inside. And it's like, oh, if this is this and then this can't be this and then this other thing can't be this. And so I think a lot of the interfaces and there's definitely, I haven't adhered to this super stringently because of the pace of growth, but a lot of them try to be as simple as possible. So I think like an example of this is the retriever interface that we have is kind of just the input's a single string and the output is a list of documents. And that's really it. And so the other subclasses can configure them however they want, but the standard interface is really dead simple. It's made it incredibly easy to add all different types of retrievers from vector stores to like hosted retriever services because it is so simple in that. And so I think just simplicity is one big thing. Yeah, that's probably like the main thing that jumps to mind. What about community building? Like you seem to have a real knack for it. I mean, how do you think about that, both in terms of the open source contributors and the sort of broader ecosystem of integrations that you're creating. Like, I see you all over the place. So it seems like it is something that you're appear to be prioritizing. Yeah. And I think, you know, it also just started like, I don't have a super <laughs> strategic view on it, to be honest. Like, I think it started as an open source project. And part of the reason for making it open source was to work with a bunch of other folks. And so, yeah, I absolutely prioritized like trying to get people like my friends and random people on the internet to contribute. And again, because I was just doing it for fun. Like, I didn't know I was going to start a company. It wasn't strategic at all. It was very much like, I just want to work on this. There's a lot to do. I guess that's another part is I think there's so much to do in this space. 
because it is so new and moving so fast that trying to do everything yourself would be crazy. And so we love to partner with people all over in all these different areas, have tons of different kind of like integrations and players with them. And yeah, I think someone said to me recently, like radical inclusivity, like, I don't know, we just partner with basically everyone because I think there is so much to do in this space and we can't do it all. In terms of community, I think there was definitely inspired a lot by Huggy Face and Clem. I think he's done and the company there has done a fantastic job. And I think that's probably the gold standard in terms of community building, at least in the ML space, which is where I come from. But yeah, I don't know. I'd never done open source before. I can't claim to have a super kind of like strategic thought about it. Honestly, my kind of thought there was just build useful things and be nice about it. Because <laughs> again, I was just doing it for fun. And so that's kind of how it started. And I love going to events and I love chatting with folks who are kind of like building with it, building similar things, just hearing how people are thinking about it. It's, I get a lot of energy from that as well. So it's yeah, just kind of fun. I mean, I would imagine one of the challenges that happens as the project gets bigger and more and more people get involved is keeping simple, consistent interfaces and consistency gets really hard. Like, how do you think about that? Like, how do you even stay on top of all the pull requests that come in? Yeah, I mean, it's hard. That's part of the reason why we turned it into a company and raised money as well was to bring on people to help out with that. And honestly, the answer is still, we don't do a good enough job as we should be. As I think as we speak, there's over like 200 open PRs and over a thousand issues. And so there absolutely is kind of like a big backlog of things to go through. I think the way that we've started thinking about it is there are certain areas where we know we need and want a lot of community contributions and help. And these can be these are mostly around things where there's a long tail of things like document loaders, vector source to some extent, LLM integrations to some extent, prompts is a very good example. Basically things where there's a lot of different implementations and we don't have the best ideas for everything. And we want to make it really easy for people to contribute those. So we try to spend most of our energy on like setting up what the right abstractions there are, making sure they don't get changed, kind of setting up contributor guidelines for those specific areas, and then really, yeah, working with the community to add a bunch of different implementations. So more on kind of like the framework and framing rather than specific implementation of things. How has your experience changed as you've kind of gone from like a small project with like very little attention to getting lots of VC funding and kind of really being in the spotlight? Yeah, I don't actually know if it's changed that much, to be honest. I think when we were raising money, a lot of our pitch was basically it's still extremely early in the space. It's still moving like extremely fast. We know there's this like massive need for some framework for building these things. That's what we want to focus on. And we've continued to do that. Like basically everything we're working on is open source and either the punter or JavaScript kind of like frameworks. So for like internally, I don't know if it's changed our mindset too much. I think we have had kind of like a good amount of success so far. We're 0.0 point something for a reason, as I'll just say that. Like we're very cognizant that things are moving really fast. We hope we're not getting too set in the abstractions that we have. We want to like really keep up to date with some of the research papers that are going on and continue to add those in kind of like as rapidly as possible and really still have a lot of what people liked about LinkedIn from the start. And so I don't know if there's that much that has changed. Do you have any particular real-world examples of applications built on Langchain that you're particularly proud of? Yeah. So I'd say there's two categories of applications that Langchain is really good at enabling. One is ones that basically personalize LLMs to your data, and this can be adding it as contextual information. So this can be like chat over your documents, chat over your SQL database, chat over your CSVs. It can also be personalized in the sense of like adding in a few shot examples. 
So I think there are a lot of examples of chat over your documents by now. I think they're out in Twitter all the time. I think like if I had to pick some of those that I like best, I mean, I think there was a really good example by a student at Williams College that did one where it was using information around rare kind of like diseases, basically, that chat GPT just didn't know about or didn't have the depth of knowledge in. And so it was grounding it in more kind of like specific focused literature on that. And I think that's a really good example of, I think obviously like question answering over your notion is very practical and applied, but I think this was a really cool example of something that has a lot of really good kind of societal benefits and stuff like that. So I like that. That's really cool. Do you have a link to that or how can we find that? We should put that in there. Yeah, I can. We actually did a guest blog post by them on the LinkChain blog. Oh, cool. So I can definitely find a link and it's linked to their original stuff there. Yeah. And then the other type of applications I think LinkChain is really good at enabling are agentic applications. So basically things where you use the language model as a reasoning engine and it decides what to do. And these kind of involve tool usage. They can involve some of the contextual stuff as well. And it also involves a little bit of like memory and agentic memory and kind of like remembering things. I mean, so one of the more creative applications, this isn't super heavy on the tool usage, but in terms of like deciding what to do next, there was a Dungeons and Dragons kind of implementation where someone basically used it as a dungeon master. And then the humans would say what they wanted to do. And then the dungeon master would make up what happened and it would remember the game state and remember different things. And so I thought that was kind of like really creative. In terms of ones that are really heavy on tool use, because that again is like one of the main value things that LangChain provides. If we're being honest, I think a lot of these applications haven't really made it into production yet. And I think this is one of the big things that we're focusing on as well. So there's some cooler demos and I'm working with a bunch of companies that are close to getting them in production or some that have them in production, but are just like still in stealth, basically. So I don't know if there are any like super public ones. Interesting. I wanted to ask you about, there was kind of like a popular post on Hacker News that you might've seen where it was like, oh, I could make Langchain in the hundred lines of code, which I felt followed a rich tradition of amazing stuff like Dropbox and Segment getting made fun of for being too simple. Like, oh, I could do this in like three lines of X. I almost feel like that made me think, oh, LangChain's more likely to be successful than I previously thought based on my pattern recognition. But, you know, I think there were like kind of two notable things. I mean, one was like interesting that the person felt like they could replicate a lot of the text so simply. And I'm curious what you thought. But then it seemed like a lot of the comments on the Hacker News article were like, hey, we're using LangChain now, but we plan to not use it like when we go into production. I'm curious your reaction to that. Like if it like bothered you or you think they might keep it in production or do you think there's like, more features that you'd want to add, or maybe LangChain is more for an experimental mode, <laughs> not on the weights and biases, at least in the beginning. What do you think? Yeah, I think first on like the post, I mean, I think it is, if I'm remembering correctly, the core idea that he kind of like replicated was this React style prompting loop that came out in a paper by Shunyu in, I think it was like September or something like that of last year. And I think there's a few things there. Like one, I think it is, as with many things in this field now like it is a really simple idea that empowers a lot of cool use cases and so like yeah you can do it in 100 lines of code that's really cool i don't know and i think the other thing is like obviously that's not all LangChain does both in terms of like the functionality and other things and i think that actually speaks to some of the value that we do provide in terms of yeah you can run it in 100 lines of code i don't think you could put something in production with 100 lines of code and i think there's a lot that still needs to go in production and i think we're looking to provide that stuff. And so that actually goes to the second point as well, which is, I think it probably depends really heavily on the type of application that you're putting in production. So again, for like some of the simple applications, 
where there's not a lot of kind of like complex prompt construction going on or there's not a lot of chaining. I think it's completely valid to not use LangChain at all. And I think it's definitely the case that maybe LangChain provides some inspiration for getting started, but then it's not needed after that. For the more complex applications, though, where there is either complex prompt construction going on or some of like the iterative stuff back and forth, I think getting those types of applications in production, especially the more agentic stuff, is more complicated than people think. Like, I think it's pretty easy to make a Twitter demo and get some functionality there with or without LangChain. But I think it is really difficult to get this in production. And that's actually like very much where we are focused and we are helping people kind of put things in production around that. I think there's a lot of nuance there, basically. And that's kind of like my take on it. When you think about the full API of LangChain today, which abstractions do you feel like happy with and you feel are stable? And like, which ones do you feel like you want to keep working on and need to change? I think the abstractions that are decent are the ones around like some of the, I think prompts are good. And then I think the document ingestion retrieval stuff is good. So we recently made a change about a month ago to make the retriever interface like really simple, as I talked about before. And I think we got a bunch of really positive feedback from people that were doing retrieval based things and they found it really easy to plug into and really easy to use. So I think the retriever abstraction is pretty good there. Prompts are also something where some of the simpler ones, prompts are maybe a mixed bag. I think we need to do some more stuff around like few shot prompting and make those good. But I think we actually have some solid abstractions in terms of the prompts classes, example selectors, output parsers, those types of like basic functionalities there. I think the ones that I'm excited about working on are memory and agents. I think we have a pretty good abstraction now for like the React style thing. But I think there are a lot of new interesting techniques that are coming out as well. So there's actually one that I want to work on today, which is kind of like a plan and then solve style agent. And so I think they'll be pretty consistent. I think there'll be a lot of new innovation here, basically. And so it's less that I'm not happy with our abstractions, but I'm just looking forward to adding to them, basically. For memory, I'm not happy at all. That's an exaggeration. For memory, there's like things that I know we should probably change. And I think memory is another one where we're still trying to figure out kind of like what exactly does it mean for a chain or an agent to have memory? And there's different types of memory. There's like chat history memory. There's like long-term memory. There's now this really cool idea of like reflection, which you can do not only on steps or outputs of an agent, but on past observations, so like update state almost. And so like, how does that tie into memory? And then there's also memory of not just like AI to human interactions, but AI to tool interactions and stuff like that. And so I think memory is one where I think there'll be a lot of progression. I guess one thing I'm curious about is evaluation, right? I mean, I know LangChain has an evaluation module, but it does seem like maybe the biggest unsolved problem that we hear at Weights and Biases, and even we hear things like, I was talking with the CEO of Replit, Amjad, and he mentioned that their LLM that they put into production, they do testing by vibes only, right? So basically what that means is they just kind of try it and see if it feels better or worse than the last version. And actually, I see that all over the place. And it just seems sort of like dying for improvement. Do you have thoughts on that and ways that you want to help there? Yeah. So I think there's a few things. One is like, as silly as it sounds, like the vibes thing isn't crazy at all. And I've heard that from like multiple people where you kind of, and I think it's basically you kind of look at it and you gain an intuition for what's good and what's bad and where it might be missing up. And so I think things that help visualize what's going on under the hood, I know Weights and Biases has done a bunch in this space recently, are really helpful for that. The other thing I'll say is, you know, I am optimistic that we 
can do better than that. I think that's a perfectly fine start to be clear. But I think like the next step starts to become like, yeah, can you automate some of these vibes basically? And I think the thing that I'm most excited about there is basically using language models themselves to assess these vibes. I really like that saying, so I'm going to start using that a lot. But the idea is basically have a language model look at the output or have it look at the trajectory of the agent or something and start giving it a score or something like that. Yeah, those are two different things that I'm thinking about. Like, how can we make it more evident what's going on so humans can look at it and understand it more easily? And that is a type of evaluation. And then the other one is trying to automate some of that with language models. If I can flip this around on you now, yeah, what are you guys seeing at Weights and Biases and how are you thinking about that? I think I agree with your assessment. I mean, I think there's no substitute for looking at individual examples. I mean, that takes me back to my very first job where I was doing search relevance. And a lot of times I think people were overly looking at the statistics on like what looks better or worse based on a held out test set. And not enough people are like looking at, okay, what is this thing like actually doing in specific cases? But then at the same time, you had this effect when I was working in search that like the CEO's daughter would have a homework assignment where she got a bad search result. And then the CEO would be like freaking out about it. And it would make it really hard to do kind of systematic improvements when you're just looking at these specific examples, maybe too closely. So I feel like The first thing that we wanted to do with you guys was make the obvious thing that people are doing today, the testing by vibes, as easy as possible. And that was like a big design element of the integration that we did with you. But then I've been wondering what you're seeing as well, right? Like we saw OpenAI avows, right? Which you know seemed like the main thing that's doing is just like you're saying, like asking the same language model to look at the result and say, does it seem like a good result or a bad result? And it does seem risky. Like if you did that with a human, there'd certainly be blind spots. If you asked me to grade this interview myself, I could imagine that being effective or I could imagine that going a bit haywire. But I'm kind of curious if what sort of the best practices that you've seen there just specifically, if we actually have a document search engine that we've built that at Edweights and Biases, like would your first recommendation to get a score of how well it's doing be to ask the GPT-4, does this look like a good answer to the question is posed? Honestly, probably. Yeah. I mean, it depends on what type of score you want to get, but I do think that's a promising way forward. I think some other good literature in this space is like the Anthropic stuff. So Anthropic put out a lot of good stuff around this related to like constitutional AI. And I, I think like notably, like one thing that they did there is they did some like quantitative studies showing that like some of the scoring did better than humans or at level with humans when looking at things. And so they did a bunch of amazing benchmarking there. I think what they did is it's more complex than just a single language model call. Because another thing is like auto-generation of some of this data as well. So like when you're talking about like your document bought over weights and biases, docs, like when you want to grade it on whether the question was like right or not, like it's helpful to have like ground truth answers to grade it against. And so I think this also gets back to like what type of score you're talking about. But I think like one thing for that is like generating kind of like question answer pairs then you have a ground truth answer. And then that makes it a lot easier to ask the bot. Like it's a lot easier to ask the bot, does this answer look like the expected answer? Then like, does this answer look correct? Because then I'm less optimistic about the latter. And I think the interesting thing about the Anthropic paper was that their pipeline for coming up with those questions and maybe the eval as well, I'm not 100% sure, but their pipeline for coming up at the very least was like very complex. So we have a simple example of this in LangChain where you can generate kind of like questions, but it's just a single pass of the language model. Their pipeline had like many steps where they would generate questions, then refine them, then filter some out. And so I think there's a lot of 
really interesting work to be done there. I guess that's a good segue into the next question of my list, actually, which are, do you have a sense of the trade-offs between using LLMs right off the shelf versus fine-tuning LLMs in terms of performance? Like, What would you recommend as best practice to someone in different situations? So for a long time, being like a few months, I think even now, get started with like OpenAI or Anthropic or one of the other models that are off the shelf. And for a while, I said, don't even think about kind of like fine tuning for a very long time. Like you can do in context learning with like few shot examples, and that's pretty good. You can also do prompt engineering to improve it. I think we are at an interesting point right now where there are a lot of like good open source models with permissive licenses, and there are starting to be more examples of how you can fine tune them. This is something that we want to look at more internally. And so I'm not sure like 100% how close it is, but I think we're. I'm more optimistic now that you can like start to fine tune things. My take would still be like get started with an open source model. If you can't do it with GPT-4, it's probably pretty unlikely unless it's like a really narrow, hyper-specified problem that fine tuning will help. So get started with GPT-4, see how far that can take you, build up this intuition for what like good examples look like, build up some data sets, and then maybe you can start to fine tune after that. And if you were going to look to a model to fine tune, where would you start? Like what would be your most basic? model start with the fine-tuning? Honestly, this is something where we need to do more exploration. I think Mosaic came out with a model like last week that seems really promising. Haven't tried to fine-tune it, so I don't know how that would go. There are Llama-style models, which a lot of people have showed to fine-tune, but there's some licensing issues there, so there's some considerations there. I know, I think Eugene Yan on Twitter just put out a cool list or a cool repo of like all open source models with permissive licenses. So, I mean, I can tell you our plan for what we're going to do. We're going to like pick an example where we think fine tuning might be useful. And so like probably like narrow application, maybe starting with like question answering or something. And then, yeah, probably look at Eugene's GitHub, see which model seems like the easiest to fine tune and do some experiments with there. Would you ever include fine tuning as part of LangChain? I think potentially, yeah. So the standard interface we have around language models makes it really easy to substitute out GPT-4 for some other language model. And so the goal of LangChain is to make it as easy as possible to develop LLM applications. And a big blocker for people that we are hearing is cost latency of models. And I think fine-tuning does solve those problems. It's like maybe not the easiest thing to do right now. And so I think that's where if the technology is there, that's maybe something that we could help with. Because I think it's pretty consistent with kind of like our goal and mission. So yeah, I think it fits in. Well, consider integrating with weights and biases. If you do that, that's kind of our bread and butter. Yeah. Can I ask a follow-up about that as well? So obviously I've used weights and biases a lot for training models from scratch. And now there's this new type of like training of models, which is prompt engineering and like adding in a few shot examples and, and stuff like that. And so how are you guys thinking of the, like, what do you see as parallels? What do you see as differences? And obviously we've done the integration to help shed light on what's going on under the hood. But yeah, if there's like prompt tuning that goes on or something like that, would weights and biases fit in there nicely? Like, what are you thinking of as parallels or new things? Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot, actually, as you can imagine. I think that there's some real similarities. And I think one big similarity is that unlike traditional software development, I think that both ML engineering and prompt engineering involves a ton of experimentation. And that experimentation typically happens in a notebook. But I think weights and biases has a role to play as, ironically, more like a well-kept lab notebook, like not like a Jupyter notebook, right? The problem with Jupyter notebooks is you actually lose all the stuff that you do. 
they're kind of ephemeral. And I think what weights and biases is good at is keeping track of all the stuff that you did. So I think there's like an experiment tracking role to play, a major role to play for prompt engineering, which is why we're actually so excited about the integration that we've done with you. You've mentioned a few times, we'll definitely put in the show notes. It's one of the things that like prompted this whole interview, which I'm excited about regardless, but we are super excited about that integration. But I think there are some really big differences. And I think the biggest difference for us is that more people can do prompt engineering more easily. I think it's more accessible than ML engineering. So the audience for us is a little bit different. Like, you know, we're really used to putting all kinds of charts and graphs and then our users are like, these aren't sophisticated enough charts and graphs. So we do Plotly integration and they want more exotic stuff. So we do like a Vega integration to give people like complete access to anything that they would ever want. And then, you know, we just kind of can't believe the amount of essentially data exploration and visualization that people do on top of their results. I feel like when the natural medium is text, it's a little bit of a different experience, right? You're doing like a lot more reading and probably a lot more by vibes, honestly, than like quantitative analysis over millions of records. So I think ideally in every case, people should be doing both. But that's caused us to try to make our text interfaces a lot more easy to use. And also we have this notion of experiment in weights and biases, which is like kind of an individual run. And I feel like the prompt engineering experience is like a little bit more organic, right? Where you can actually kind of try lots of different prompts and like tweak them. And so it's a little bit of a different workflow. And the chaining is interesting too. I mean, that actually you do in machine learning, but I think you do it even more with prompts. And I think there's an analogy to hyperparameter search as well, probably, but it's a little bit different. But I think at the end of the day, the role that I think we should play is the same, where it's like all about the sort of like logging and tracking and reproducibility and helping people get these things reliable enough that they can run them in production. And honestly, I don't think we ourselves know everything that we have to do to kind of get to that point. Like we're still iterating with our users like crazy and talking to people like you. Yeah. I mean, I don't think anyone knows (laughs) to some extent, like that's what makes it so exciting. I think experiments are really interesting because like two of the things I mentioned earlier, like cost and latency, and you definitely track latency. I saw that in the integration. Do you track costs as well? And like, what other things are you seeing yourselves track? Because yeah, as we've talked about, it's hard to track vibes at the current state. So so we don't track costs right now, but we probably will by the time this recording comes out. I mean, that's important, obviously. But I think more important than cost or latency is actually helping people understand the vibe. <laughs> and so I actually think having a really easy interface to seeing what the inputs and outputs are and also the intermediate inputs and outputs, I think that's actually the most core requirement because you want to make it really simple for people to like spin through lots of examples and get a feel for how well things are working. And I think also explore text. So finding like examples where certain things happened, I think is also important, which is why we're putting a lot of thinking. It's like, how do you actually like search the giant table of all the prompts that you've built? Because at some scale, I think just gets so unwieldy and you might you know find these areas where stuff is happening. And I guess another dumb thing is just like error messages, right? I mean, none of these like backend systems are perfectly reliable. The error messages are pretty cryptic. And I feel like if you run a thousand prompts through it, you're like guaranteed to get a couple of weird errors. And we want to help people find those. That may go away over time as these things get more robust, but it seems like kind of an acute issue right now. Yeah, I like what you said about finding, searching things like sort of at robust 
we were in the MOP space and there's a lot of like monitoring companies that kind of do similar things. And I've seen a lot of cool kind of embedding based products that basically create embeddings for prompts and then do cluster. I think Arise had a really good one that does embeddings, plots them out. You can then explore different things. I mean, I think that's useful for both like finding issues and debugging, but then also just getting a sense of what users are doing, which is, I think there's some interesting things where like that's like useful, not just for kind of like the person who's debugging it, but also to like product insights almost. Have you thought about trying to like bridge that gap and having weights and biases? If you are looking for like searching different things, be like, yeah, for a product person who's trying to understand how people are using their thing. Oh, oh for getting product insights? Yeah. That's certainly an off-label use of weights and biases that we see a significant number of people do. I do think it's important to have like a real shared sense of what the ideal user profile is and what they're doing. So we don't build for that use case today, although ML does blur into product quite a bit. Like, I mean, so many of the conversations that I've had on this podcast have ended up being around more kind of product stuff. And I think there are these unique product challenges of making unreliable ML systems or unreliable prompt systems into reliable products that people like. And that I think is more of a product management challenge than a technology challenge. So I guess as I say it, I'm not sure there's quite a bright line, but we're not trying to compete with like a mixed panel or something like that at this point. Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking about this now, but like in the old world of machine learning where the inputs were numbers and features and stuff like that, that'd be really hard to interpret, right? For the everyday person. But now the input's like text and it's like anyone can do that and it's based on vibes. And so maybe there is overlap. I don't know. Well, let me ask you this. We have another question on our list that I was curious to get your thoughts on. I look on Product Hunt, you know, every couple of days and I always see some kind of like no code prompt engineering type of thing. Do you have ambitions to serve an audience that can't code at all? At the moment, no. I think there are a lot of great projects FlowWise and LangTrace are two built on top of LangChain that are pretty good at that. And I think the reason is like, I think for a lot of the more complex applications, it's still really hard to get them into production. Like we talk about agents, they're not widely in production yet. They're like maybe in a few of the super early startups that we're working with or have them in production, but like they're not widely in production. I think it's just really hard. And all the ones that are like highly technical teams that are doing it through code, not through a UI. And so to me, that's the most interesting thing to push on and go after. And that's the direction we're going. I think there are like super valuable kind of like, I think there's some great stuff being done by those two companies I just mentioned, as well as, you know, I think like Mishpa is doing a lot of great stuff with Bubble and enabling like a whole new set of people to build on top of LinkChain. I think that's something where we're very happy to work with the community on and have them like push the boundary on. I think our skill set is just a bit more suited for like helping put some of these more complex use cases in production. And that's really what we're pushing. Do you also like to focus on a single <laughs> ideal user profile? We try to. I mean, for the issues, there's so much going on, so it's tough too. But yeah. <laughs> Totally. Do you think that prompt engineering is a real job? I'll say I've heard a lot about prompt engineering. I've never met anyone that described themselves as a prompt engineer. I have seen tons of people that are doing prompt engineering, but it seems like they're not only doing prompt engineering. I'm curious what you're seeing on your side. Yeah, I think it also depends on like what exactly you mean by prompt engineering. And I think there's maybe like two separate things. So one term that I'm trying to popularize, I haven't started officially trying to popularize it, but that I've been saying in conversations is like prompt construction. Because I think prompt construction is really important. What I specifically know about prompt construction is like pulling in the relevant pieces of information, whether it be prior chats or like reference documents or something like that. And I think this is so important because a lot of the 
applications that people are doing are asking language models to produce generations grounded in some of the context that's in the prompt. And so if you don't construct the prompt with the relevant information, then like obviously it's not going to get the right answer. Like one of the biggest mistakes for question answering systems, and this goes back to kind of like some of the evaluation stuff, the biggest mistake usually is that it doesn't retrieve the right information. Like retrieval is super important. And if it doesn't retrieve the right information or if it retrieves partial information, obviously it's going to get it wrong. So I think prompt construction is really important. And I think there will always be work done on prompt construction in terms of like thinking about what should go into a prompt, engineering some of the systems to put the stuff in the prompt in a reliable and quick manner. Then there's the other type of prompt engineering, which is like, this was much more common in the early days where like you're playing around with the verbiage of the instructions. I mean, okay, so even in the instructions, you still have to be like pretty clear about what you want it to do. And I think that will converge to basically how I would explain to a human to do a task or something like that. You still have to be pretty clear. But then there's like weird stuff where you're like adding extra spaces or like messing around with some of the punctuation. I think this is way more evident in some of the image prompting where you like add all these random characters or random sequences and it messes it up. I don't think that'll be around, but I think like everything around constructing the prompt and like being good about instructing the prompt, and this might be more writing skills than engineering skills, but I think those are here to stay as long as we have prompts. It's actually funny. My first company was called Crowdflower and it was a system for like, you know, collecting training data, which is mainly making these tasks for crowdsourced humans to work on. And I actually think it's a, has a lot of similarities to prompt engineering where you have to like pull in all the relevant information and be like clear about what you want. And it's surprising how hard that is for people to do, especially when they don't exactly know what the input data set is, right? There's always like 10% of cases where you're like pulling in data that's really different than what you thought it was and where your instructions weren't as clear as you thought they were. So I totally agree with you that this kind of prompt construction is absolutely here to stay. Yeah. You know, as we think about like how to make it clear what's going on, right? Like, I don't know, like how do we as human, like if I give someone unclear instructions, how do I debug if it's unclear instructions or something like not? And I don't have anything specific in mind, but like, I think if we do think that language models are going to the point where language is this is the universal interface, you tell them what to do and they like, how do we debug like our human conversations? And are there parallels that we can use there for like prompt construction? Yeah, you, know, you mentioned feeling like Anthropic was becoming like an interesting competitor to OpenAI. I was sort of thinking from your perspective as essentially this kind of layer on top of all these things. I realize there's a lot of other stuff that you do. You know, kind of a world that's like a monopsony with only OpenAI creating large models would be kind of worrying for the work that you do. I love the work OpenAI does. I admire it. But, you know, it also is kind of worrying for us here at Weights and Biases. But I'm curious like how you're seeing the space change. If you have any predictions on how you think things might unfold in terms of LM providers, you think there'll be one or thousands or where you think that the world goes? I think there'll probably be like multiple good ones. And I think those will always be like a step up above the open source. And, but then I think there'll be a really wide and vibrant open source community. And so I think that'll happen. And then I think it becomes like, what's the delta between the models? What are the applications that live in the delta? And then if you start to fine tune, like how easy is it to take an open source model and fine tune it so that on a specific task, it gets up to par with the open source or with the private models. And I don't know. I mean, I've gotten more bullish on open source in the past like week or two. I can tell you that. I still think they'll lag behind the private models for a very good amount of time. I'm optimistic that there will be kind of like multiple, like really good private models. And yeah, I mean, it's crazy impressive what OpenAI has done, right? Like they're far ahead in this field. 
and they've continued to push out features at an incredible pace. And so it's really impressive. I do think they'll probably be like, yeah, over the next like year or so, one or two other companies, maybe more that get to that level. But I don't know. Do you have any takes on this? I think this is something that everyone's asking themselves. So I'd be curious for your take. Yeah, I'm really not sure. It, it does seem like there's so many smart people working on this right now and so many people that seem to have access to really significant amounts of funding that I would have thought we would have seen more impressive competition by now. I guess we sort of have seen things that are, you know, can compete with like OpenAI Circa like a year or two ago. I've been impressed how much of a gap they've been able to maintain lately. I mean, I guess I'm more of a like, wait and see what happens. I could see arguments for either side of that one. In a way, I think it's also technical questions decide this too, right? Like how much does it really matter to have orders of magnitude more infrastructure, right? Like, I mean, I think that at the end of the day, that's going to be expensive. And if, you know, always stay orders of magnitude ahead of everybody else in terms of compute infrastructure gives you like a big gap, then I do think that's a world that kind of wants to be, you know, more of a small number of players. But, you know, if we run out of data or something like that, I mean, more than that's a powerful force and it changes things quite a bit. So I think it's also interesting because I think like a lot of the stuff that OpenAI is putting out recently is like not just the models, right? It's almost more agents. They've got the coding thing. They've got the web browsing thing. They've got plugins. These are using, I think, probably like specifically trained models, but the end thing that they're putting out isn't just the model. And so I also wonder if we'll start to see like Google or Anthropic start to do that. Because I think if you look at what people are wowing on Twitter these days, it's not like the OpenAI playground or chat completion playground anymore. It's like the code generation or the web browser thing. And so I think they're starting to like push their advantage, not only in the model space, but in the hooking it up to tools and using it as an agent. So yeah, curious to see how. So I guess there's basically two separate things. Like, can they keep on having the best underlying model? And can they start pushing their advantage even more in kind of like this agent-like tool use thing? Well, you know, we always end with two questions and I want to slightly modify them for you. Normally ask what's an underrated aspect of machine learning that you think people should pay more attention to. But I feel like in this case, I want to confine that to like the LLM space. Do you think there's like areas of work? I mean, there's so much happening on Twitter and I don't even know what's underrated or overrated in terms of attention. But I guess if you had more time to explore, are there like particular like LM techniques or like aspects of using LMs that you would want to investigate yourself? Yeah, I think one really underexplored thing is like user level personalization. I think you look at like a lot of the apps and they're combining it with like general sources of data, but they're not really starting to personalize it to the user. And I think this could look like adjusting the prompt over time through some reflection step. We just released kind of like a blog post today on how you can use feature stores in addition to prompts to bring them in this like prompt construction way to bring in kind of like user level information. And so I think like user level personalization with LLMs is probably one of the larger. And I get why it's underexplored because you kind of have to make these applications generally useful and then worry about personalization. But I'm really excited for that. Okay. And final question is when these things go into production, what ends up being the hardest part of actually taking like a working demo using LangChain and turning that into a product that people can actually use? I mean, on the main thing still getting reliability good enough, I think for the like complex use cases getting reliability good enough. In demos, it's fine if it works 10% of the time. In production, it's usually not. And in, in the really important production use cases, it's definitely not. So I think the challenge is still getting into production rather, yeah. 
Fair enough. Harrison, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Lucas. Thanks for having me. If you're enjoying these interviews and you want to learn more, please click on the link to the show notes in the description where you can find links to all the papers that are mentioned, supplemental material, and a transcription that we work really hard to produce. So check it out.